Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Freely Nourish, the podcast that empowers you to break the cycle of dieting by teaching you to nourish your body well. I am your host, registered dietitian, Erin Casey, and I'm also the owner of New You Nutrition Counseling, where we believe that you can reach any of your health goals at just about any body size. Uh, so if you are tired to get of the constant cycle of shame and frustration and guilt and whatever other negative emotion you want to tie to your body, to food, and you are ready to just feel free to live in your body um, and choose foods that nourish it without any bogus BS, then we are the practice for you. Um, we have lots of offerings on our website, newunutrition.com uh, for everything from digital courses that you take on your own to group programs to one-on-one coaching. Um, so if you take a look at it, and you're like, I don't know what to do. Uh, there's so many options. Don't worry. Uh, we are also offering free what we call discovery calls. So that is basically just a free 15 minute call with me. Um, you tell me kind of what you're looking for, what your struggles are, any barriers that you have with your nutrition. And I kind of help direct you to the, the right program with our group, if any, um, or, you know, can also refer you out if, if our practice does not meet your needs. So um, definitely encourage you to check that out. I'll put the link for the um for the free discovery call as well um if you're just kind of not sure where to start um but all of this sounds really great so today i want to talk about um something that i i get a lot of questions about um and, and something that you know i think uh in the anti-diet space we really don't talk about a lot um just because it kind of you know rubs against what we're doing but um i think i think it's important to talk about it and that is this notion of either uh we call it bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery um so there are a couple of different types of procedures that kind of meet that category. So I'll talk about those in a minute. Um, but first, I want to kind of be explicitly clear that anyone in the healthcare space should want to see the right treatment in the right patient. Um, and I'll be flat out honest, sometimes I am not the right treatment for the patient. Um, and, and my approach is not the right treatment for every patient. And that's okay. I know that. Um, and, and everybody else that you come in contact with should know that too, right? Um, you know, there's, at this point, you know, most, you know, diseases have multiple medications to treat them because one may not work for everybody, right? Or, or some may be, work better in other people and not in others. So, you know, I think it's important to recognize that even though I'm an anti-diet space, I'm a weight-inclusive dietitian, um, you, I don't necessarily hate the idea of bariatric surgery. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's wrong for every patient. Um, I think that's kind of the assumption people, um, come to you when they, they, absorb my content. And it's not that I love it. I don't promote it. And, um, it's, it's never going to be the thing that I help you with. Um, but I think it's important to kind of talk about it from a grounded and evidence-based, um, standpoint as well. Um, so what is, you know, bariatric or weight loss surgery? I'm going to probably go in, but I'm going to keep trying to say weight loss, but bariatric is kind of the, the more medical term for it and the one I'm used to using. Um, so if I slip up, just know that bariatric and weight loss mean the same thing. Um, so there's three types or kind of three main types, I guess I should say, of, of weight loss surgery. Um, 
There's a traditional gastric bypass, which is um, where we kind of make a little pocket out of your stomach. So we cut away a large portion of the stomach, but then we also reroute where that stomach goes. So normally you go from your stomach to your small intestine, um, or there's three sections of your small intestine. So it goes from your stomach to what's called your duodenum, and then from your duodenum to your dejunum, and then from your dejunum to your ileum. Um all of that to say 90% of that absorption of your absorption of the food that you eat happens in that first like couple of centimeters right after your stomach. That's your duodenum. What the bypass does is it makes your stomach smaller so you can eat less food, but it also induces a state of malabsorption by bypassing that part of the small intestine where the absorption is most common. So your, your duodenum. So instead of your stomach connecting directly to your duodenum, where most of that absorption happens, they actually move it. So they connect your, they, you know, kind of sever the connection between your stomach and small intestine and then reconnect your stomach down at your jejunum. So you still get some absorption, but it's not nearly as much. So you've kind of got a double whammy, right? You've got a smaller stomach so you can take in less food, but then you've also got this induced malabsorption that what you are eating, your body's not absorbing. Um, and then, so, and then I'm going to go, go, through what the procedures are. And then I'll talk about kind of what the differences in terms of like clinical outcomes tends to be for all of them. So standby. Um, the room and why was kind of like the original bypass surgery. Um, I will say that there are significantly more complications with it because if you heard what I just described, it's, it's a pretty severe, uh, procedure, you know, you're, you're taking away about 80% of your stomach and kind of forcing it to, you know, forcing your body to not absorb most of your nutrients, there's going to be a lot of ill effects from that. Um, I will say that there's very rapid weight loss from it. So people tend to see very rapid weight loss and there's a very low rate of weight regain because you can't absorb nutrients. Um, that said, there are significant, significant complications, um, lots of GI complications. Um, patients have a very hard time eating after a gastric bypass or, you know, eating is never quite normal ever again. Um, and, and to, for some people, that's the exact point, right? Um, but but for others, it's kind of an, an unwelcome surprise. Um, there's also lots of malnutrition um, uh, side effects that you know persist for years and, and decades down the line. Um, so honestly, the ruin why is kind of phasing out a bit, um, and it has given way to the gastric sleeve, which is very similar to the ruin why in that you cut away about eighty percent of the stomach, but you don't change any attachment points. There's no bypass with it. So what you do is you take you make the stomach smaller, so your intake is less, but you're still able to absorb everything that you intake. That that does seem to do a better job at preventing that malnutrition. It also um, gets you to the point where you are able to eat somewhat normally again, um, eventually after surgery, not right away. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but basically there's, there's fewer GI complications just because you're in there rearranging less stuff, right? I think that just kind of makes sense. There's no malabsorption or no induced malabsorption, I should say. Um, so the, that risk for malnutrition, you know, persistent down the line is, is significantly less, um, and your stomach can eventually stretch back out to size. Um, so that can be good and bad. The good in that is that you can eat somewhat normally again, kind of later down the line. The bad news is you can eat somewhat normally again later on down the line. So the rate of weight 
sorry, the rate of weight <laughs> regain is significantly higher. Um, also because in a gastric sleeve that is compared to the Roux and Y, um, also because the surgery is not as intense. You're not moving as many things around. There's no malabsorption. Um, the weight loss is a lot slower. It's still fast, but it's not, it's not as fast as with the Roux and Y. Um, and then there are things kind of like bands and balloons and, and various kind of other ways to um, restrict intake to the stomach without actually physically changing the stomach. So there's a lap band procedure, which basically just means that they kind of take your stomach. If you kind of picture your stomach as like a blown up balloon, um, and they kind of just tie a little ribbon around the top of it so that it's uncomfortable for you to eat past a certain point. It basically kind of closes off part of the stomach, um, without actually surgically removing it. Um, similar, they can also put like a balloon into your stomach to kind of take up space in your stomach to where there's less room for food. Um, both of those procedures are less invasive. Um, so even though they are kind of going in there and putting things in, um, all of those things are removable. So they're not permanent. Um, that said, they are not really effective. <laughs> um, so I won't spend a whole lot of time kind of talking about either of those procedures just because they're really not super effective. The lap band is probably more common than like a balloon. Um, but the band still like people tend to have a lot of complications with it. There's a lot of like, you know, GERD or like regurgitation issues with it. Um, and, and the weight loss is pretty minimal. So for a lot of people, it's kind of like a, was that really worth it? I kind of went through a lot GI wise. It's not permanent. So there's no like long-term damage, but did I really lose any weight for a lot of people? It's pretty minimal. Um, so um, I will say that the lap band is adjustable as well. So like a lot of times they will kind of adjust how tight the band is essentially depending if you're symptomatic or not. Um, but it's, they're not used very much anymore. Um, the sleeve and the the sleeve is probably the most common now. And for some patients, the Roux and Y, um, I'm sorry, the Roux and Y is, is the bypass. Um so I actually found a really good meta-analysis, which like, if you know data, um, a meta-analysis is like the top tier. It takes all research control trials, which are like the second top tier and compares them against each other using like higher statistical standards. It's just like chef's kiss of, of data. Um, and these procedures have been around long enough now that we have, um, that we have good data on them. Um, so it kind of gave you kind of some of the, um, the, the pros and cons of, of all the procedures. Um, I will also say that for really any of these procedures, you are looking at um, immediately following your surgery, you're on a liquid diet for usually six to eight weeks. Um, it it kind of depends how, how you tend to progress, but um, for most people, it's, it's a good six weeks before they're really able to eat solid food again. Now you might be able to get into some like mushy oatmeal or potatoes or, or things like that, um, you know, within, within a month, but it's going to be pretty minimal. You know, a couple of tablespoons of potatoes are going to be like your dinner, um, for, for a, a good while. <laughs> um, and then you kind of eventually kind of go back out to a normal diet. Most people are not able to tell tolerate carbonation very well at all. Um, so, you know, if you're a soda drinker or, um, you know, a beer drinker or anything like that, um, you're going to have to give that up <laughs> another, um, some people can tolerate like some carbonation a, a months out, um, 
but it's not going to be like your, your slugging diet Cokes or anything like that all day long. I mean, it's, it's going to be a here and there at best type of thing. Um, the other thing, um, that really gets people with really any of these procedures is sugar. Um, so again, sugar sweetened beverages are, are key, but like, you know, even like sweets, um, even small amounts that your stomach can handle, um, it causes what's called dumping syndrome. So that means that basically that concentrated sugar hits your digestive tract a lot faster because you have such a small stomach and because it's not used to handling, um, that amount of food or that amount of, um, sugar, it just kind of floods your colon with water and you dump or by dump, I mean, literally dump, you have diarrhea. Um, it's really uncomfortable. Some people have dumping syndrome. If they try to eat a piece of cake, some people have dumping syndrome. If they try to eat an M&M, um, it, it really kind of varies, but sweets are often very problematic. Um, and then the rest of it kind of, you know, after you get out of kind of your liquid or like soft phase diet, um, tolerance really varies. And most people don't do great with things like steak or chicken kind of long-term. Um, you know, when I say chicken, I mean like, you know, a whole chicken breast, you're going to do better with like shredded chicken, um, shredded pork, things like that. Um, you're gonna have to be careful of like fried foods, pretty much all long-term, um, you know, things like that are going to be stuff that you're going to have to really limit or it's going to make you sick. Um, again, everybody's just slightly different on that front, but, um, there's definitely long-term you don't eat normally by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in terms of the benefits though, um, what I was really curious about is kind of, you know, everybody knows, you know, somebody who's had weight loss surgery and lost a whole bunch of weight. Um, but the rate of weight regain is is high in both the sleeve and the, in the room. And why? So, um, what I was looking at is, okay, at five years out, you know, kind of once they've lost all the weight, um, you know, did it stay off? <laughs> right. Um, and, and kind of, you know, what were other, you know, like metabolic markers and things like that looking like at, at five years out. Um, so I will say, um, that, at uh, at five years, um, the, the group that had, you know, bypass lost about 65% of their excess body fat. So I want to be clear that this isn't that they lost 65% of their starting weight. That would actually be really dangerous if they did. This is like, this is your excess, right? So let's say you are somebody who weighs 300 pounds and your goal weight is 200 pounds. That means you have a hundred pounds of excess weight to lose, right? So what the bypass will give you is 65% of that or 65 pounds. Um, so that's just kind of a, a number to kind of keep in mind. Um, it would be different, you know, let's say your, um, you know, your weight was 400 pounds and your goal was to be 250. Well, that means you have 150 pounds of excess weight. Well, whatever, you know, 0. 0.65 times 150 is that, that would be kind of how much weight loss you would expect with the bypass alone at that five year mark. It didn't specify whether or not those people had gone lower than that 65% and then climbed back up to that. Or if like that was just as low as they got, it didn't specify. But my suspicion is just based on reading a lot of this research kind of over the years is that they probably lost more weight initially, probably in that first year to two years. And then it slowly crept back up at that five-year mark. Um, 
so this is somebody who you know let's say they wanted to weigh 200 pounds they're probably like riding at like 235 which is still better than 300 so like i'm not i'm not mad at it um for the sleeve it was slightly less so at five years they had lost about 57 percent of their excess body fat um so that's again compared to the ruin why where you would expect um you know if you had a hundred pounds to lose, you'd expect to lose 65 from the, um, from the ruin Y or the, the gastric bypass. I'm sorry. I keep saying that, um, you would only lose 57. So it's a difference of about seven or eight pounds, uh, which is not a huge difference given the difference in risk of those two procedures. Again, I don't know if the people with the sleeve had lost more weight and then crept back up. Uh, we don't know. And I'd be interested to see what the same data says at 10 years, uh, because I think at five years, you know, most people lose the most amount of weight with these procedures in the first, like, usually 24 months. So two years and, you know, five years is not long after that. So I would be really curious to kind of see what this looks like in another five years. Um, and, and kind of see where, um, you know, if, if, if the numbers stay the same or if people are continuing to kind of regain weight, um, I will say that with both procedures, patients who had diabetes, um, there was about 70 to 75% of those patients had resolution with either procedure. Um, so that means that, you know, the diabetes essentially went away um, after the procedure. Now, what I don't know is that that happened immediately following the procedure or if that happened um, at some point over the course of five years. To be honest with you, I don't know that it matters, <laughs> right? Um, I'm curious intellectually as to like, what would be causing that? Is it the weight loss or is it um, something in the manipulation of the GI system that causes that resolution of the, um, of the diabetes? But from a patient standpoint, it doesn't matter. It's, it's likely gone in 75% of patients who presented with diabetes at the time of their surgery. Um, similarly, anybody who had high blood pressure, um, about 80% resolution. So that kind of basically to me means somebody who is essentially taken off of medication, um, for blood pressure management. Um, so that's, that's exciting. Um, also lipids improved. So lipids are things like your cholesterol and triglycerides. Um, they didn't give a number for resolution. So when you say diabetes resolved in 75% of patients, you mean that 75% of patients that were diagnosed with diabetes and took medication for it before the start of the study at the five year after their surgery mark, no longer take medication to manage their diabetes. It's considered to be in complete remission. Same for blood pressure, right? So it means that, um, you know, 80% of patients who presented with high blood pressure prior to their surgery, five years after their surgery, no longer take medication to manage that. And um, it's considered to be in complete, you know, it's completely resolved. Um, with the blood lipids, they didn't say resolution, which means that people are probably still on medications to manage it, but they were improved. The lab, the average lab values did improve. Um, and there was no difference really between the two procedures for any of those markers between the diabetes, um, the blood pressure, and the, and the lipids, um, the biggest difference was in the percent of weight lost. Um, everything else was very minuscule that both procedures kind of pre presented equal benefits. Um, 
which I think is probably a lot of the reason why the sleeve is probably a lot more popular now. Um, just because as we're seeing, you know, even though that weight difference, that like eight pound weight difference between 65% of excess weight versus 57% of excess weight, it was statistically significant. But I think to most people, that's not a significant enough of a difference given the complications that the true bypass or ruin Y procedure does present. Same with the rest of the diabetes, the blood lipids, the blood pressure, you're seeing a lot of benefit from a much less risky um, procedure. So that's kind of all the good news, right? Um, but I would not be doing my anti-diet due diligence <laughs> if I did not tell you um, that there's there's a lot of drawbacks to these surgeries. So I think probably the thing, and again, I want to be explicitly clear that I'm not opposed to bariatric surgery. I think that there are some patients that it is absolutely the right choice for them. Um, and, you know, as much as I want to say, you know, you could do anything you want at any size you want. I always say just about any size, because there is a reality that at a certain point, our body size does affect our health. Now that point is not where medicine has told most of us that it is. It has nothing to do with your BMI being like at 30. Uh, but when your BMI gets to like 50, 60, um, likely there, there are some complications there. I say likely because we haven't thoroughly, the BMI is trash. It's not a good scale to use. Um, so you know, we don't have good data that really tells us where that cutoff point is. But logically, I think we all know that like at a certain body size, there's there's going to be a problem. Um, and if you've just, you know, tried everything, cannot seem to get that body size down, or you're kind of playing with fire in terms of complications, um, you know, you're having heart issues or the diabetes is unmanaged or, you know, kind of whatever the case may be, um, there's reasons and there's patients who where this procedure is 1000% appropriate. Um, I will say that the bariatric or the weight loss community have big, the business, the biggest perpetrators when it comes to misinformation about the BMI um, and kind of, you know, they, they, they're the ones clinging to this idea that your BMI is like the determinant of health when it's really not. Um, and of course they are because whether or not somebody comes through their doors for surgery is dependent on the BMI. Um, I think it's also important to note that until 1995, the BMI cutoff point for obesity was 35. It's now 30. Um, so literally overnight, you know, this, we keep hearing these trends of like, Oh, like two thirds of Americans are overweight or obese. Well, yeah, because you changed the benchmark, <laughs> right? Like you, when you changed it from 35 to 30 is now considered obese. And, um, when, you know, from 30 to 25 is now considered overweight. Well, you included a whole bunch of other people that were, you know, 24 hours ago, were not considered overweight or obese. And now they're considered one or the other, uh, because you literally changed, you moved the target. Um, so like, while yes, that is true, it's true because you change the definition, not because Americans are getting fatter per se. Um, so I think it's just kind of important to note those kinds of weird statistical anomalies. Um, I think it's also important to, um, and this is kind of where I'll, I'll sink my teeth in a little bit, to really consider the long-term complications of these procedures before you get them. Um, I think, like I said, all of the data I just presented to you is at five years and that's fresh data. I think that meta-analysis was published in like maybe 2019. Um, so that, that's really fresh data. That's the best we have. We don't have the 10-year data yet. We don't have the 15-year data yet. We don't have the 20-year data yet. It doesn't exist because these procedures haven't been around or at least haven't been optimized and studied for that long. Um, so I think, you know, when you 
go into these procedures. I think so often people think it's kind of like the smoking gun or magic bullet to um, finally get your weight down and get your life back. And like that can be the case for some people. But I also want to be clear that it is not without long-term consequences. Um, like I mentioned, kind of talking about, you know, some of the long-term eating things. Eating, to be honest, with both of these procedures, eating is not normal. Um, it is... Um, it's not always problematic, but but it's not normal. Um, certainly with the bypass, you have a higher risk of, of malnutrition. You also have a harder time eating. Um, but either way, you know, things like carbonation, sugary treats, um, fast food or fried food, things like that are going to be pretty well permanently excluded from your diet um, for any of the... Um, any of the procedures, you're going to have to take a rather robust vitamin supplement because you are not able to physically take in the micronutrients that you need in a day. Um, and to some extent, sometimes the macronutrients that you need in a day, you are going to want to buy stock in premier protein. Um, and you are going to probably have to drink it forever. It's going to be part of your life anyway, forever. Um, the, the micronutrient supplements, so things like, you know, B12, um, vitamin D, calcium, et cetera. Those things are things you're probably going to need long-term forever um, in order to feel and function normally, just simply because you're not able to get them through your diet. Um, so, so those are things to just kind of consider. Um, I also think the thing that people underestimate the most hands down, you know, because we tell you all of this, we tell you all of the things. And I think sometimes it registers with people and sometimes it really doesn't. Um, but the thing that nobody really gives the consideration that they should is what this is going to do to you emotionally. Um, what is it going to do to you emotionally to sit at your Thanksgiving dinner table and only be able to eat a spoonful of, of everything? Um, what is it going to do to you emotionally to potentially have to give up alcohol altogether? What is it going to do to you emotionally to not be able to eat, drink, and socialize with friends the way you used to? Um, what is it going to do to you emotionally to not be able to turn to food if food is a coping mechanism for you? Um, you know, I tell people this all the time. If food is a coping mechanism, you cannot take it away without putting another coping mechanism in place. Um, so make sure that you have the support that you need. What is it going to do to you if your family is all eating your favorite fast food restaurant, but you can't eat it because you know, it's going to make you sick. Um, things like that. Um, and I think nobody, the, the far and away, the thing, every single patient comes to me and tells me is that I never, I completely underestimated how difficult this is going to be emotionally. Like physically, it's really not that hard. Um, it, it's really not that hard. You get, you mess up a couple of times, you get the hang of it. Uh, that part's really not that difficult. The emotional part is a bitch. Um, because as you guys have heard me talk about on this podcast, our brains are highly adapted to coordinate food in our emotions, right? So food directly affects our serotonin. It directly affects our dopamine. Um, and two of those are like our two main like pleasure and well-being centers, um, or sorry, pleasure and well-being neurotransmitters in our brains. Um, so without food to modulate those things, how are you going to modulate it, right? Um, and if you're somebody who, of course, has been turning to food, then you're going to have a hard time finding another way. Um, and also, you know, when we think about food, you know, the meanings behind it culturally, um, spiritually, et cetera, um, 
there's a lot there. Um, so I really encourage anybody who's thinking about this procedure. Again, it may be the right procedure for you. And I do not mean to dissuade anyone who is considering it from, you know, kind of continuing down that path. But I do want to be explicitly clear that there are long-term consequences, whether those are consequences you're willing to take on is up to you. Um, but I want to be clear that they are there um, and they are real and you will probably underestimate them. Um, so I hope that that helps to kind of answer. I feel like these are kind of the most common questions I get from people. If you guys have more specific questions about either procedure, um, about more outcome measures, things like that, please let me know. I'll be happy to, to look it up. I, I, this is something that I deal with pretty often. So, um, I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, but for now, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day and I will see you next time.